are in the group, right? We're in the group that's playing tonight. You go right straight through this door here, down the hall. Yeah. Turn right. Yeah. And then there's a little jog there, about 30 feet. Jog to the left. We don't have time for that. Go straight ahead. Go straight ahead. Turn right the next two corners. And the first door you sign, authorized, personnel only. Yeah. Open that door. That's the stage. You think so? You're authorized. You're bringing musicians, aren't you? Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Rock and roll. All right. Rock and roll. Let's get it. Let's get it. No, no, you see this way, this way. Rock and roll. There we go. Hello, Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland. Glop Culture is brought to you by these fine sponsors. The Great Courses. The Great Courses Plus lets you learn about anything that interests you, history, business, or even how to cook, play chess, or speak Spanish. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash glop to get your first month free. And buy Harry's Shave for a great shave and an even greater price. Go to harrys.com and enter the coupon code glop. And buy Casper Mattresses, premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Delivered to your door, Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. Go to casper.com slash glop for $50 off your first purchase. And yes, welcome to Glob Culture. I'm John Pudhort, sitting in the convention center in Cleveland, Ohio, which is not actually where the convention itself is taking place. It's actually taking place in the Quicken Loans Arena, where the Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA championship a couple weeks ago. And also somewhere here in Cleveland is Jonah Goldberg, Jonah, where are you exactly? Hello, John. I am back in my hotel at the Wyndham Playhouse Square, having just miraculously emerged from my second nap of the day. I would just like to point out, if I could just share with you, that while Jonah is luxuriating in the Wyndham Playhouse Square, a mere walking distance from the Quicken Loans Arena, I, with the New York Post, am staying at a Motel 6 in Richfield, Ohio, 24 miles away, that is the place you go after your fourth divorce. And I believe in the Republican platform, it says that Donald J. Trump would like all Syrian refugees to be permanently housed at this Motel 6. Just to give you a sense. Motel 6 sounds like it's cruel and unusual. Ah, And there in California, of course is Rob Long, Master of Ricochet. Uh, well, before uh, we continue, can I just say that this uh, all of our fine sponsors are fine and wonderful, but this p- podcast is also brought to you by Ricochet, ricochet.com, the fastest-growing, most civil conversation on the web. Check it out. You get a free month, membership free. We ask you to become a member uh, so that everyone in the conversation has skin in the game. We know no trolls or nastiness allowed. Go to ricochet.com. Um, and also sign up for The Daily Shot. The Daily Shot's a great uh, email blast. comes in your e- email box every morning, gives you all the tidbits and information you need to arm yourself with any conversation with a liberal you might, might come across. Um, and I'm in California, and I'm watching this thing uh, that you guys are up close. But, but this, is my, this has been my experience the last time I went to a convention was that you're never really – you watch it on TV. It's like you're, you're in your hotel or you're in a bar or you're with other people watching it. 
But you're not there. Are you guys there? Are you going well, into Rob, that thing? Rob, uh, speaking as a journalist, I guess that's it. That's a credentialed a American journalist working for the oldest newspaper in the United States, founded by Alexander Hamilton. I love who was not who was not throwing away his shot. Did he? Did he rap he about is it? Just I... like his country, young, scrappy, and hungry, I... and we're not throwing away our shot. Right. I for the last two nights, have been on the floor of the Republican National oh, Convention. God. I can I report say, to you Jonah's been on the floor, too. But the floor. Remember. That's right. Jonah has not been on the floor, I believe. I know. I've been on a floor. <laughs> I just haven't been on the floor. <laughs> so, um, so, well, let me ask you. So you start, Rob, because you represent, you know, the real America out there in, in Venice, yeah. California. Uh you know, because that's really the heartland, I would say, you know, where the Trump voter, where the Trump voter lives. Uh, what, what is it like watching, what is it like watching it on TV? How does it seem to you the first, we're, to, we're speaking, this is, we have the third night, we've, we've seen the first two days of the convention as we're talking. Um, and we, of course, we saw part of one of those days uh, in 2008 when Michelle Obama gave her speech. <laughs> Look, I, I think the problem here is that it's not a great. It, it doesn't. It's not Hello? coherent. The themes that they keep saying they're hitting, they don't hit. So the economic growth and jobs um, plot, uh, night was all about how rotten Hillary is. Uh, you know, I think this is a. I mean, look, it's hard for me to be objective, right? Because I, 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 I am not a Trump supporter. But I'd be prepared to to assess the convention on pure show business terms, um, and this is terrible show business. It's terrible show business, and I don't understand why. Because uh, Paul Manafort, of all the his, I'm sure his manifest failings, is supposed to be good at this. Well, so it turns out that he's not, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> I said that also not as a Trump fan, but I really am trying very hard to gauge the convention in its own terms. And I've written a couple of columns, and I've written a bunch of blog posts at commentarymagazine.com, and I'm trying to suss out what's, what it feels like, what's going on here. And there is one significant factor about the hall. So the hall, the way it's set up is it's like a big basketball arena, and the convention, the delegates stand on the floor, and there's a podium Right, which actually looks like the stage of the Carnival cruise ship that we go on sometimes when, or whatever it is, when we do our National Review cruises, and then there are the stands where people sit in basket when they're watching basketball, right? Seats that go up, and then there are sky boxes, and in the sky boxes are the media, and then there are all these seats. I don't know what they are—twelve thousand seats, something like that—and they're three quarters empty. Now. Uh, they're three quarters empty because, as people know, uh, the one of the many unusual factors of the Trump campaign in 2016 is that since he is forswore raising money Wait. or only started. Okay, so those are usually where donors sit, and there are no donors. Is that it? There are no donors. There are no corporations with a hundred coming with a hundred people to run. You could fill it with party. Trump's. You could fill it with no, Trump zealots, right? Ah, no, you can't because. This is one of the most secure places on earth, right? So every single person who gets a pass to go into the arena has to give their secret service two weeks early. Their How does Jonah get in? Their social security number, uh, in Jonah's case, his parole number, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, his... Jonah, uh, you know, is that my, your my case, 
in my case, my registered sex offender yeah, number. John, is, you know. is that your impression that you, when you go in, it's empty? Oh yeah, no, it feels very empty inside. Um, it, you know, it, in 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 fairness, and again, I'm striving to be sort of fair to these guys too. I have a very is it is it I can never remember is it Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, um, but one of those you know about all conventions suck, but each in their own way. Um, I'm trying to be a, as objective as possible about this, but so in fairness, at least last night, one of the reasons why the hall was so empty it was the weather was so beautiful that a lot of people were just standing outside in the open air watching it on screens. Um, at the same time, the first night, I mean, there were a lot of reasons why the first night was a friggin' disaster, but one of them was when Trump came out to retrieve Melania from Michelle Obama's speech. Um, <laughs> once that was over, it sent the signal to everybody that the show was over. I mean, it just felt that way. It was like, oh, wow, that was great. She did a great job. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. You know, Trump comes out, kind of looked like he was pointing at his wife's chest, um, which was weird. But then they went off and everyone applauded. That was great. Let's go get a drink. And then they put out Mike, you know, Michael, General Michael Flynn, who gave one of the worst speeches I've ever seen, and I'm not talking about the content. For all I know, the content of it was was great. <laughs> um, but I've never heard monotone shouted like that before. It was really it was, I, I I didn't think you could shout monotone, but there was right. zero inflection from word to word, paragraph to paragraph, sentence to sentence, and the audience was so turned off by it that that even after a night of nigh upon bloodlusty jingoism about getting about killing the terrorists and stopping the the cop killers and stopping the the illegal immigrants he tried like a half dozen times to get that crowd to chant USA USA and he couldn't do it um and then when he stunk they pushed Joni Ernst out of prime time so the first night i thought was a legitimate convention dis, you know disastrous night and the okay, one here's what happened Right. But here's what happened, and this is why Paul Manafort, the campaign manager who supposedly is the great convention runner, turns out to be a lousy convention runner, which is that they timed the evening badly. It was going very slowly. The primetime networks were only covering it from 10 to 11. And if they had left the schedule conventionally, which would have been to have Melania at the end of the evening, they had no assurance that it was going to end by 11. So they brought Melania out at 10.15, which was sensible, right? They brought her out at 10.15 or 10.10 so that to make sure that she got the primetime slot and that people would watch. The problem was that that was, the, that, was, that was the capper of the evening. That was the thing that everybody was waiting to see. And Flynn starts yelling and everybody walks out. And like last night on Tuesday, yeah, but they were going to walk out anyway. And last night on Tuesday, the capper was... Donald Jr.'s terrific speech, and he was done. Yeah, that was a good speech, right? And then it was easily the best speech of the convention and an extraordinarily important speech, which is to say, if Trump wins, if Trump wins and finds the right tone to strike, this speech will have been the opening salvo in the turnaround Uh of tone that will help lead to his victory. But... 
The point is that they That's got a him very, on. Very tortured little chain of events. You just, no, no. you just. Not at all. I'm saying. I'm saying. I'm saying. <laughs> right, finally, right. the thing right. that was interesting about the speech is that he found Trump's theme. Right, Trump's theme is making America great again. He said the the point of Donald Jr.'s speech was that uh, Trump is a guy who does not see. He's a rich guy, but he is a he's a down to earth guy. He does not see social or class distinctions. He looks at people one on one. He sees someone in his organization who is promising, and it doesn't matter what they are or who they are. He picks them out. He gives them a shot. He pushes them to do better than they ever thought that they could do themselves, and that that is the story of America. That Americans can be can if they're given opportunity, they can push themselves beyond their limits and do things they never dreamed of, and that is what Trump can do for the country. That is a very smart frame. The first, hey, I like it. Right? Okay. So that was Trump's speech, Donald Jr.'s speech, and it was over at ten twenty-five or ten thirty. And there was still another half hour to go. And so this uh, soap opera actress, Kimberlyn Brown... Stretch! Who is, stretch! ...who is also an avocado farmer, as she said, 87 right. times. But, but what I'm saying is, like, why was that... I mean, I, 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 I just, it's just surprising to me that the one thing that Republicans were supposed to be good at was the show business part. Now, we, we know we have, you know, our, our, our celebrities are Bo, Derek, and Chachi, but we're supposed to have, you know, it's supposed to go be sort of seamless and a little bit um, canned, if anything, canned. And, I mean, I think this definitely shows you the value of canned. I mean, it's weird that, there's a, I mean, we, we, oh, everybody hates experts and everybody hates, you know, establishment, but if you, if you want a, you know, a, a good meal or you want um, a good heart surgery, you go to the expert, right? You you don't say, "Give me the renegade heart surgeon, the one who breaks all the rules and is outside the establishment." No, give me the expert guy who's the establishment guy, and have him do that because I don't want any. I don't want it to be messed up. It's a very right, strange but, but thing, the, you know. Right, but that's the whole point. Like, uh, so in 2012, uh, a convention that ran like clockwork until uh, Clint Eastwood. Was given well, the opportunity until they nominated Mitt Romney. Perfectly until Mitt Romney was the nominee. Yeah. No, but I also, guess. but also until you know, until they allowed you know an eighty-three-year-old uh, guy to do improv on the stage. Um, you I know, like a, guy, a guy named Rush Schrieffer, uh, one of uh, one of the leading figures in the campaign, spent four months planning for that convention. He worked seven hours a day, twelve days a week. They had everything down to the amazing. second. They had, you they had contingency plans. Right. They had contingency plans right. on contingency plans. This is all going by the seat of the pants. They didn't even know how many delegates. They had two guys on stage counting the delegates. Counting them, by yeah, hand. by hand. By but hand. It's, like, it's weird. When you go to one of those parties, when you go to an Oscar party or an Emmy party or you go to an award show you, or, or anything where there's a party planner, it always seems so tiresome, the things they think about. Okay, well, where are you going to stand right before? Here's where you stand before you go on. Here is where the water is. Your water is marked. And then you walk three stages. Like, all that stuff is like bizarrely, uh, uh, bizarrely planned. And then, and then when you do it or you're there, you realize just how, just how easily everything can go south if 
the chair is not where the chair is supposed to be or the the lady who goes on third after the other per people is not in the third on green room and checked in with a handler there to give her her you know green juice or whatever it is she needs like the level of this kind of thing is so insanely complicated that um i mean it does in many ways it does uh, mimic the federal government so um if you can't do this maybe you can't do that well, also, you know, well, now we're talking about politics let's say let's talk about culture yeah. But just one last point of this. I, I actually agree entirely with the the critics who say that the media went nuts about – went overboard with the Melania plagiarism thing. Um, I think ethically what Melania Trump did is a triviality, you know. I mean I'm against plagiarism, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it was a, it was a screw-up. But the problem was, you know, Manafort should know – I mean he should know better than we know that – the reason why these Republican conventions have to be so perfectly scripted, particularly the Republican ones, but all conventions, but particularly the Republican ones, is that the media only wants to re- only wants to cover the stuff that goes badly or makes Republicans look bad, and so that is why you have to script it down to a T in order to give them no choice but to report on the things that you, on your message. And then right. for them to go full Trumpian Manafort Ukraine style politics and deny for 48 hours that there was plagiarism involved was incredibly stupid because that became the only story exactly. that the media exactly. ran on. And then to fire the person at the end or have her quit, it's, it's just this, it's weird. It's just this weird right. – it's hard to believe that Corey Lewandowski is not still running that campaign. But what I thought was bizarre about it was their 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 initial defense, which I kind of loved, was um, uh, it isn't plagiarism because those are meaningless cliches. By the way, by the way, common words. I like that. They kept saying these are common words. Well, you know, (laughs) all plagiarism is pretty much with common words. It's the order you put them in. Yeah, Yeah. it's the Roman alphabet. Everyone uses the Roman alphabets, basically. Yeah. But by the way, it's twenty plus letters. Twenty plus letters in certain order. And I thought, (laughs) I thought that, I thought that there were two other funny parts, which is that Melania said that she wrote the speech herself. And she sounds like uh, Ava Gabor on Green Acres. So I would suggest to you that perhaps her English prose leaves a little to be desired. And it wasn't just that. No, 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 no. Joseph Campbell spoke with an accent. And he, again, wrote some of the finest novels ever in the English language. That would would be Joseph Conrad. That would be Joseph Conrad. Joseph Conrad. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Joseph Campbell was the uh, was the was the Jungian. Wait, uh, did I say Campbell? I'm sorry, I meant Conrad. Joseph Campbell. Okay, uh, so Melania. Yeah. However, oh, I, don't, I, I, I don't think that that Joseph uh, Conrad said, uh, "Oliva, do you want hotcakes with sausage?" You don't know that. You don't know that. That's sitting true. in your ivory, sitting here in Motel Six Ivory Tower, swanning around your hotel suite. You don't know. <laughs> swanning has to be your favorite verb. It is. I love it. I do love it. It's a great verb. Please, let's can we just talk about it for a minute? Go ahead. It's fantastic. Please. To swan, you know exactly what that means. You know exactly what they're doing. It's not strutting. Because strutting is something you do so it has a more of an aggressive 
tone. Swanning is a kind of self-satisfied, smug perambulation that I imagine the 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 establishment figures do in their hotel suites as they uh, pass judgment on the the rank and file Republicans who have elected a an unconventional and exciting nominee. I also How's that? Like, How's I, that for Vichy language? <laughs> and I also and I also like the the, the word uh, Swan calls to mind Alan Swan, the character played oh, yeah. by Peter Peter O'Toole in my favorite Money. year. That's directed right, by directed by Richard Benjamin, right? Uh, the great movie about uh, your show of shows, which uh, if you haven't seen, uh, Peter O'Toole plays Errol Flynn. Uh, called Alan Swan, and he's uh, an outrageous, rip-roaring drunk who has to try to keep it together for a week to perform on a 1950s variety show. And it's a delightful movie, and it has one of my favorite lines in it of all time, which is that uh, when Swan goes to uh, Brooklyn, to the apartment of young Mel Brooks, whose name is something else, the, who is the leading character... Benji, uh, Mark Baker. Benji, Benji, right. Who is the... Actor and, and Mark he, Lynn Baker. Actor Mark Lynn Baker. He takes him to his family's home in, uh, in Flatbush. Uh, and um, everyone in the building, of course, is beyond, beside themselves because a movie star is coming to the building. And he opens, and Benji opens the door, and there is his aunt in her wedding dress. His her sixty-year-old 60 and in her wedding dress, and he says, "Well, Aunt uh, Aunt Aunt Sophie, that's uh, that's quite a dress you have on there." And she says, "You like it? I only wore it once." <laughs> Which is, I think, one of the great lines. Not but sure you know what else? Uh, it's well, it's, there are many great lines in that movie, but I that 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 has a particular resonance for for me because I had ants exactly like that. So, um, and you know, aside from. And uh, my favorite year is a great movie, and now it's time for us to tell you a little bit more about The Great Courses Plus, uh, which is a great course as a Wait, great movie. That, that's your transition? Wow. Uh, <laughs> listen, <laughs> many, of the, many of you Kate, out there Kate in Jenner squad lines... <laughs> You're right. Kate, Kate well, Jenner has it was less shocking. Record. It was less abrupt. <laughs> <laughs> Easier on the eyes. <laughs> Easier on the eyes. <laughs> you know, Caitlyn Jenner has yet to finish uh, finish his her transition, but we have now finished this transition because I'm going to say many of you have already signed up for this great video learning service, and you now have unlimited access to over 7,000 fascinating video lectures taught by award-winning professors. But if you haven't signed up for the Great Courses Plus just yet, now is the perfect time since we have a special offer to tell you about shortly. Great Courses Plus lets you learn about anything that interests you, history, business, how to cook, play chess, speak Spanish. You can watch these engaging online video lectures anytime, anywhere, on your TV, your laptop, a smartphone. One of the courses we've been watching, not I, but one of our many friends in the ricochet land, is The Skeptic's Guide to American History. Uh, interesting look at how certain misconceptions from World War II have shaped American policy, how issues during the 20s set the stage for the cultural shifts of contemporary America. We know you'll love The Great Courses Plus. Like we do, sign up today, and as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. Make sure to check out the courses we watched, The Skeptic's Guide to American History, or not. Call to action to sign your free trial to start your free trial today. I just read the stage directions, everybody. 
Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash glop. That's T-H-E-G-R-E-A-T-C-O-U-R-S-E-S-P-L-U-S dot com slash glop. And we thank The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring Glop Culture. Now, uh, moving on to not only my favorite year, uh, and an era evoked in my favorite year, uh, very sad news came out today that uh, Gary Marshall, one of the great uh, writer, uh, producer, executive producers, Rob's line of work um, in television history, and a and a film director, commercial film director of some great note, uh, after his unbelievably successful career as a TV uh, executive producer, showrunner, uh, died today at the age of, of 81. Um, and I believe Jonah and I, and I'm not sure about Rob, but Jonah and I have a particular affection for Gary Marshall because uh, while he is best known for doing Happy Days in Laverne and Shirley, uh, before he did Happy Days, he was the, he was the showrunner of The Odd Couple, the TV series version of the Neil Simon movie with uh, Walter Matthau right. and Jack Lemmon, the TV show with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. That is probably my favorite show of all time. Uh, New Yorkers in particular have a connection to the show, not only because uh, it was set in New York and about New York, but it was on... It was for a great some, show. It was a, right. it was a great it show. Was on, it was not, on a, hit on, on, not a hit on the air. It was a hit in reruns. Right. Right, but it was it was on for five years, so they made they made 110, 115 episodes, and when it hit New York at eleven o'clock at night, when we were kids in reruns, right? In reruns, um, no people just couldn't get enough of it, and uh, and um, and it, it was probably the most New Yorky, most New York, tr- true New York show, I mean comedy anyway, on until Seinfeld, maybe. right? Exactly. Was it possible? With the possible exception of Barney Miller, I think that's right. Yeah, right. that's well, a very Barney, good point. Barney yeah, Miller's right. Although, although but, Barney Miller, which is the guy, one of the shows. Yeah. I actually had uh, – I was in his office. I was in, I, 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 we, we were in his offices at Paramount for 15 years. They were his old offices. Oh, and, really? Um, yeah, and he, um, you know, because Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley were um, shot at Paramount at the end of the uh, stage 19 and 20. The weird thing about that show is that those shows are that the Happy Days set was the happiest set ever. Like, it really was happy days. They all loved each other. They, the, the, the cast and crew knew each other. They went to birthday parties together. They, the, the, some children ended up getting married. The kids of this person ended up getting married. There were children and grandchildren born there. They were incredible, an incredible family. Um, on the other side of the wall they shared was Laverne and Shirley. And as you walked, people said, as you walked from one side of the soundstage to the other through that wall, you entered... Is like East Germany. It was miserable. Everybody hated everybody else. Nobody was talking. Penny Marshall, who's Gary's sister, and at, that, at one point the, the the wife of Rob Reiner, uh, she and Cindy Williams weren't speak. Nobody was speaking. Everybody was furious, and it was the weirdest thing. And even Gary Marshall said he never understood why it shouldn't be that way. But I will say this: there's there's, there's two stories, two, three, I have three three good Gary Marshall stories, which I'll tell you if you want to hear them. Um, one is uh, he was walking down um, the, the, out of our, our office, the Bob Hope building, down to this, his set uh, with Henry Winkler, who had just been, who is now just gone supernova uh, as the Fonz. And I, I, I tell the story in uh, on Ricochet, so if you want to see it, go to ricochet.com. Um, and they pass a tour group, and the tour group 
uh, stops and they're, hey, look, it's the Fonz. And Henry Winkler's a nice guy. He says it nicely, but apparently he goes, uh, you know, I don't have time to say hello. I'm, 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 uh, I'm actually walking here with Gary, my executive producer. And then the tour kind of walks away awkwardly. And then he, Gary, you know, they walk a few more steps down and then Gary pulls him into this alcove and throws him up against the wall and says, hey, I put your face on television and I'll take, I'll take your face off. <laughs> Go over there and say hello to those people. And he sent him, and then of course Henry Winkler, who's a nice guy and smart, and just ran back to that tour and spent as much time as they wanted with him. And of course, when Gary Marshall said that, he didn't say those exact words. There was an Anglo-Saxon expletive in front of sort of every noun and verb and adjective there. But um, but that's sort of a good, cool, cool story. And then the other thing he said, he, he invented the phrase when he was talking about what made good TV. He said, yeah, you know, just imagine the people they're watching TV and the guys on the sofa and the wife's in there doing the dishes and something happens on the TV that makes them say, "Hey, May, get in here! Hey, May, get in here!" <laughs> and so you're always looking for the "Hey, May." Hey, is this, you know, we made jokes about it, like, "There's your Hey, May," we would say, but um, actually, he was right. It was like, "Hey, May, there's a guy from space and he's drinking a water with his finger," and that was Mork from Mork. Or, "Hey, Hey, May, there's the guy with the motorcycle," and that's Fonz, and that was his way of looking at show business. Hey, May. I got two, 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 two other stories. Oh, Joe, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's right. I was, I was going to chime in about how I actually liked Mork and Mindy, but we can always come back to that because that's, that's Mork and Mindy's all, a brilliant show. That is always relevant. Yeah. Well, so so there are two there are two th- two interesting things about Gary Marshall. Uh, I, I have one good story. I, I read his two books. He wrote two very good books. One book, if you're interested in comedy. You must read it's his first book. It's called "Wake Me Wake Me When It's Funny," and it's about his early days as a comedy writer. And he broke into the business writing for a comedian named Phil Foster, who ended up playing uh, Laverne's mother, uh, Laverne's father, and Laverne and Shirley, but was a was a, a, a comedian of note in the 1950s. And it was Phil Foster who said, as they were driving up to the Catskills for him to do something, and they were trying to write a joke. Foster sitting in the car was said said to said to Marshall and his uh, and his co co writer, all right boys, wake me when it's funny. And then he went to sleep. And 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 Marshall said that he and Foster had coined this term for what how television worked best. And it was a moment that they called a schmoney, which was a moment that was both schmaltzy and funny, and that this was the gold of American comedy, that it was not enough to be funny, because being funny was somehow, was sometimes heartless, and was alienating to audiences, but if you could add the schmaltz, if you could make it sweet, while it was funny, if you could make it, like, flavorful and nice, while it was funny, that that was where you, where, where you hit the gold. So it's a very interesting book, Wake Me When It's Funny, and the other great story about Laverne and Shirley and the horror on the set, on the horror on the set, was that uh, Gary Marshall was in, employed his entire family. So, by the way, he sounded like a Jew from the Bronx, but he was in fact an Italian from the Bronx. Everyone always thought he was Jewish, but they were but they were Italians. Um, and he employed his entire family. And his father, who was a very difficult man, he set up as essentially like the bursar of Laverne and Shirley, and he issued the checks to paychecks every week to the staff and, you know, did uh, expense accounts and stuff like that. And one day, uh, Penny Marshall, uh, Gary's sister, storms up to Gary and says, I'm quitting, I'm leaving, I don't know what's going on, you're not uh, paying me. And he said, what do you mean we're not paying you? And she said, for three weeks, 
Uh, I haven't gotten my paycheck, and uh, I don't know what's, what the hell is going on, and my agent doesn't know what the hell is going on, and so I, I can tell you want me out, so just fire me and let's be done with it. So he said, I don't know what you're talking about, and then he goes to his father, and he says, Dad, what's going on? Where's, where's Penny's money? And he said, I'm not giving it to her. She was rude to me. <laughs> And she was the star of the number one yeah, show. But she also was but her father, sure. but her father, right? But her father had the had the, had, the, had the signing privileges on the check that was going to pay her for those weeks, and didn't, uh, and he didn't do so. So uh, that's that. Wait, those we, are some do we, costs. Of a do we time for one more? One more story. Sure. Uh, one more. Halfway through the op- the premiere of Laverne and Shirley, Michael Eisner, who was then head running, running Paramount, and his underling at Paramount was uh, a young executive named Jeffrey Katzenberg. Um, he calls Jeffrey and he says, uh, "I want. I'm ordering a pilot." Which you're not, you know, studios don't order pilots, networks order pilots, but he was a big studio mocker at the time, and he said, uh, I'm ordering a pilot, um, uh, Lenny and Squiggy, they're, they're, they're gold. Lenny and Squiggy, spin off. <laughs> I, 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 we're making a pilot, we're gonna make it in three weeks, and then we're gonna make ABC buy it. Um, and so they, in three weeks, they put together a Lenny and Squiggy pilot. Uh, there is a pilot, it is somewhere, of <laughs> Lenny and Squiggy. It stars uh, Lenny and Squiggy, obviously, David Lander and Mike McKean, but also my good friend Harry Shearer. It is apparently the worst, <laughs> the worst thing you've ever seen in your entire life. It is so shockingly awful that it's almost, it would be a career ender. You would retroactively not like, like Spinal Tap because Mike McKean and Harry Shearer are so terrible in this pilot. <laughs> I was on, I was the Paramount Law for almost 20 years. I could not find it. Harry, I'm convinced has a copy of it and will not show it to me. I had PAs. Like, I would say to them, your job, the year that you're here, is to go into the archives and find me a copy of this pilot. It exists. And they would always go, like, well, no, like the, good, like, the archive guy says it doesn't exist. It exists. Find it. And we never, ever found it. It was the day the clown cried of pilots. But that exists. People have seen that. Right, yeah. Actually, no. Here's here's the Harry Shearer, my friend Harry. He's seen Day the Clown Cried, and I said, "Oh, come on! You're telling me the Lenny and Squiggy pilot is worse?" He goes, "Much worse." The Day the Clown Cried is the Jerry Lewis movie where he plays a clown at Auschwitz. Yeah. Uh, what could go wrong? It's like wait. So there, there, there's a clown at Auschwitz. And he only cries on a, one day? <laughs> like, I mean, I would say if I'm a clown and I'm at Auschwitz, I'm probably going to, I'm going to probably get all, uh, get a little, you know, the waterworks are going to start maybe I know, know where the afternoon. I want to know where he got the makeup. That's, that's what I want to know. But, yeah, you know, those Nazis. but, but, you know, here, but the weird, the weirdest part about the day, the clown cried is it's this notorious, the most notorious unseen movie in American history. And right. no one's ever seen. They won't show it. And Jerry Lewis is, won't show it. And no one will ever see it. And then 25 years later, Roberto Benini is like, "Oh, I'm a clown with Auschwitz." In the in life is beyond. Well, he didn't say it like that. that. No, but it was sort of like I am going. He didn't to say it like that. Now you're making we're it sound stupid. We're having it is stupid. We're having a game, so my son, my child, doesn't know that we're in a concentration camp. Well, that's camp, different. That's and different. He wins an Oscar. The man wins different. an Oscar. That's a fundamentally different movie. 
I mean, I, I didn't like that movie either, but it's a fundamentally different movie because in that movie he plays a dad who's creating right. an illusion, uh, creating right. an illusion for his fr- for his son out of right. sort of love and devotion and trying to protect his son. The, the weird thing with the day the clown cried is that it, it 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 posits the idea that the Nazis at Auschwitz thought, well, we should have a clown for the kids, <laughs> <laughs> which is highly unlikely i don't i mean i'm not a, i'm not a i'm not a holocaust historian but i would say that it's highly unlikely hey, obermeister where are the balloon animals we must have balloon animals it's for the kinder the kinder you just you're just the tastelessness. Even making jokes about it is unacceptable. Everything about, about it is unacceptable. It. And uh, I have... Oh, hey, um, I have so, so Gary Marshall, R.I.P. I'd say Gary Marshall, R.I.P. That kind of comedy is gone. I don't think it's coming back. Uh, certainly multicam comedy, the way he did it, uh, survives in, in sort of the catacombs, but not even the catacombs of CBS. And, you know, CBS makes a billion dollars a minute on these comedies, but nobody seems to have an appetite for them. I love them. If I was going to go out tomorrow and pitch a comedy, it would not be a comedy like that, even though it's a comedy that I would love to do, because people would say, ah, you're too old. It's old. It's old. Th- those comedies regularly got 30 shares. Thirty. I mean, we, even on shares, we got 30 shares. 30% of all televisions in use that night, the night before, uh, were tuned into your show. That was normal. Dude, when, and, um, right, so you just don't see that now. When I was a kid, um, when Happy Days was on, and you know, I'm a little younger than you guys, uh, and um, there was an episode of Happy Days, I think almost every person sort of around my age will remember this, where there's this loser character who needs self-esteem, and Richie and Fonzie try to figure out a way for him to get in the Guinness Book of World Records. And the only thing they can figure out is that he has really fast hands, and he is going to stack coins on his elbow while his arm is bent upwards. It's hard to explain on, you know, verbally. Right, but people right. remember this. And then catch the coins by flipping his hand down. And the next day at school, every kid from nursery school to sixth grade that's all they wanted to do was see who was the best at catching pennies in their hands and every kid i knew growing up had the same sort of recollection you know kids went to school in queens whatever and i don't know that there's a tv show today for kids that could possibly instantaneously create a cultural phenomenon like that you know within within eight hours you know it was just amazing Or families like that, that. That was a time when, like, you would those shows would be on, and you know, it was like a the network for it is a wallpaper, right? Because it was on all the time, and, and it was important to get the eight eight p.m. slot because you got the eight p.m. slot back then. It was like, you know, I'm gonna get off my butt and walk all the way across that television, and switch the channel. But even the remotes were weird. Like you watched eight eight thirty Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and then I forget the rest of the lineup. But that ABC lineup it was, was killer. A killer. It was a killer. Line. It was insane. And, and people, I mean, a, a, as much as people loved Happy Days, they, uh, the, when, when Laverne and Shirley premiered, it was even bigger. Right. It was, it was one of those things that it's, it was impossible to understand just uh, with, with a TV show how, and how long it lived and where, where it went. I mean, at some point, the Laverne and Shirley character, Laverne and Shirley, they moved to LA, of course. They all, uh, they always moved to Hollywood. But that's, that was just, considered normal that you would grow up and then that show would still be on and um you know yeah. you come back from you know, college and you'd be, be on 
Yeah, but you know, to return to return to the Odd Couple, which is the show that I think, if you were really as a creative matter, you were going to say he should be remembered for, you would probably say it was the Odd Couple. The interesting thing about the Odd Couple, you wouldn't. No, I just think I just think that it was a much more you know, as a as a. Uh. I think the Yorkers love that show more than it does. I think they like it more than it really counts. No, but I think what what was interesting about it is that it was this wildly successful movie, and as they often did at the time, they made this kind of what would be like this kind of second-rate road. What they were doing was slapping up a second-rate roadshow version, you know, with people who would have been the second cast, uh, you know, on Broadway, uh, you know, to to star in it, and, and they managed to take it and transcend its root and come up with you know infinitely funny numbers of ways to show this kind of difficult relationship between this you know finicky difficult uh, miserably neurotic guy and this kind of yeah everyday but it was ultimately it, it was ultimately a, a buddy picture right I mean I mean I think yeah. it was good it was a good show but like uh, yeah it wasn't his original thing I mean uh, lots lots he was young I mean to me I don't. I don't gravitate to that. I mean, whereas when when uh, Jonah mentioned Mork, Mork and Mindy, Mork and Mindy was a fantastic show. Mork and Mindy was a show that like that changed the way television comedy worked and what you said on TV comedy. Mork and Mindy, in a lot of ways, opened the door for and not a lot of it was, lot of it was Robin Williams. Most of it was Robin Williams, but it was also Gary Marshall who saw in Robin Williams, okay, I'm going to let this guy go and see what he does. And that's a very un, that was a very unusual, in fact, not unusual. That was a completely, completely alien attitude uh, uh, in show running in in America before before Robin right. Williams and Mork. No one ever said just let him do his thing and we'll we'll we'll, we'll catch up later. And even if you watch Mork and Mini reruns, I mean, they're <laughs> some of the editing is crazy, like it's super sloppy uh, because. You know they didn't have you know you don't have you have to in order to cut things you got to have coverage you have four cameras going at all the times and you have to like make sure that everybody uh, is in roughly the same sh- position they were in as you go from shot to shot so it doesn't look like they're hopping around the you know hopping around the set and, and more committee they often did because Rob Williams hopped around the set and um, and Gary Marshall let him do it and kind of shaped a show around that and and then things after that there was the first show that felt like. A TV show written by people who had grown up watching TV. They watched the same reruns that I did. They made fun of the same things that I made fun of. I mean, I was only 11 or 12 or whatever, but it did feel, it felt like, oh, that's, that's fresh. So one of the things I always remember about Mork, two things I always remember about Mork and Minnie. First of all, I mean, I loved, I, I thought it was great. I really thought it was interesting. Even when it flopped, it was something I hadn't seen before, but um, uh, I'm a huge Jonathan. I was a huge Jonathan Winters fan, and I always loved you know when Mork basically had a baby named Murph, um, and they just doubled down on the <laughs> on the ad living. But the other thing I always thought was you know I guess it was the first but time you I say that Jonathan Winters played the baby. We should just like yeah, John, so Jonathan Winters plays this like 60 year old fat. Baby, because uh, Orkians age backwards, and um, uh, and um, but then the other thing was that um, I guess it was the first time I'd ever remembered this sort of the outrage about equal work for equal pay for actors and how Pam Dauber was always angry that she wasn't 
treated as yeah. a bigger star as Robin Williams, and the idea that somehow gender had something to do with that. I mean, I mean, Robin Williams is this is the scenery eater of all scenery eaters. Yeah. He's a yeah. he is a planet swallowing Galactus yeah. of scenery chewing, and the other attention. Yeah, poor okay, Pam Palmer's I, not getting enough screen time in the script. I mean, come on. You can see her agent saying, it's Ann Mindy. It's Ann Mindy. I mean, <laughs> it's right. just Mark and call it Mark. But it's Ann Mindy. Okay. She's integral to the success of the business. That you can just I mean, hear of, a, a lawyer. In, in, in. She was like the okay. Cole, Hannity and Combs. And you know who used to complain about that too? Cindy Williams complained about that because she thought that That's she right. wasn't getting the jokes. And she and I think she has she had a, a they, they had what they call favored nations, which means that they were all getting paid the same. Um, that yeah. was the brilliant favored nations is what you want. I mean, John Forsyth brilliantly in Dynasty was the guy who said, "I don't care." I have favorite nations plus one dollar. So when they got Joan Collins on and she became super uh, uh, um, super popular, they had to pay her like a million dollars an episode or something. They had to pay John Forsythe a million dollars in one. Uh, that was like, but but you, um, uh, who was the? It was um, John. Uh, who was the girl? The sad, the, the really unfortunate actress in Three's Company, not Suzanne Summers, not John Joyce Ritter, DeWitt. Joyce Stewart. Joyce Stewart. Joyce yeah. DeWitt used to complain and complain, and she was apparently she would say things to the writers at the run through when she was yelling at them about why you know I, I'm funny. She'd say I'm fun, I'm funny, and I'm really pretty. I'm really pretty too. Oh, it's so. Sick. And it was like everybody had to kind of look at their shoes again. Like, yeah, we know you are, Joyce. We love you. You're wonderful. We have a whole thing planned for you later. Don't worry about it. This is just one episode. We're doing a whole. Joyce DeWitt thing. You're, it's a it's a talent show, and you you get a number. And okay, and I, I just kid was saying it to her. I love that 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 three's company where there's that misunderstanding when they, yeah, they were that talking was about so good, <laughs> yeah, so good. And then, <laughs> I want to do more of that. And, so the, and then the landlord comes up, which is really <laughs> yeah. funny. But you know, you know, uh, get, to say one thing about Pam Dauber, which is that if you if you had Pam Dauber has been married for thirty five years to Mark Harmon. And right. Mark Harmon is now the single biggest star in American television. Right. He, he is now in his 15th year a star of NCIS, a show that is the number one show on television, has been now for seven years, and it has literally no cultural shadow whatsoever. It casts yeah. no cultural shadow. Well, it, it casts a shadow, just that no one notices it. It's like right. no, one, no one New York Times writes about it. I mean, the articles right. written about NCIS are all about... Here's a show that everyone's watching except everyone who's reading this article. <laughs> right. So NCIS, NCIS has literally 28 times the audience size of mm-hmm. HBO's Girls. Oh, yeah. 20, without a doubt. 28 times more people watch NCIS. Right. And by the way, NCIS is a right-wing show. It's a show about you know military forensics and uh, and uh, these. They're but all here's in the, the military. Thing. If you yeah. asked people who watch NCIS, yeah, would they pay for it, and how much would they pay for it? Right. That's the question because yeah. the, the the point of that girls is true in terms of sheer audience size, but the HBO business model is subscriptions. So right. they just they, they just want to get you to sign up for it right. to feel like there's something you're missing out on. Yeah. And so I got so they they consider their subscription fee not so much an entrance ticket or admissions ticket, but an option. You're buying the option to watch the show that everyone's talking about. And so in a way for HBO. The most important thing for them is awareness. Right. But buzz, I'm, I'm talking about cult- so culturally, 
though, if you cover news events and culture doesn't work this way, that's what's interesting. That's true. Would you cover? Would you would you provide multiple you know articles covering a you know uh, a county councilman in Delaware? Or would you do a presidential candidate? That's the difference in the size of the audiences here that I'm talking about. But, you know, guys, audience oh, is no. all well and good, but it's time to talk about shaving. That's an even worse transition than the last one. Well, at least you know what? We're running out of time. So harrys.com was started. That is, Ernest, that is Ernest Borgnine to Ernestine Borgnine. <laughs> in terms of transition. Right. Wow. <laughs> Harry's dot com was started by two guys passionate about creating a better shaving experience. By the way, if Ernest Bordine did transition to Ernestine, he would need a lot of Harry's shaving. Harry's <laughs> <ladies. laughs> right. right. He certainly would, and you know why? Because it's the best. Superior, it's a superior shave. And, you know, Ernest would be very excited to know that Harry's bought a blade factory in Germany that has been crafting some of the world's highest quality blades for almost a century. By cutting out the middleman, they can offer an amazing shave at a fraction of the price of drugstore blends. They ship the blades right to your door. Factory direct prices. Their starter is just 15 bucks. Razor, three blades, your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. As an Anabos, you can get five bucks off your first purchase with the code Ricochet. After using my code... You can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just 10 bucks. Shipping is free. Satisfaction guaranteed. Go to harrys.com. Five bucks off if you type in my code GLOP or my code RICOCHET. That's harrys.com. And enter coupon code GLOP. Five bucks off. I'm saying it again because I'm reading something off a piece of paper and start shaving smarter today. And our thanks to Harry's Shave and its very fine blades. Yeah, and I think so- they're coming up with a new one. They've, they've invented or they designed a new blade. I mean... That's either coming out or is out. I'm sort of excited. Right, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! No what I think about, can I just say? I think about. The, the, I, I will reverse segue by saying this. You know, that's what we do in Hollywood. We either we reverse it or we flip it. I'm going to reverse it and say that um, they didn't. I mean, it, it still looks like a razor blade. It still looks like a razor. Like you don't have to. Everything doesn't have to be like totally different. It's sort of the Gary Marshall idea. It's like yeah. You know, it's it's okay for things to like resemble the things that are there from. I mean, Laverne and Charlie and Happy Days and even Mork and Mindy were kind of they looked the same. They had this a similar tone, etc. But but they were fresh within that. They were were fresh systems, so that people felt like they could they, 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 that it wasn't homework. I mean, I think that's one of the things. I mean, it's my own show business mantra is that nobody pays for homework. Uh, and when you feel like you're giving people homework, it's when you, your audience is going to start going away somewhere else. Um, so, by the way, can I just uh, so can we can we can we transition to back to the to the uh, uh, convention because I want to ask you guys a question. Yes, so, and, I, and um, I, have, I, have a, I have a brief story I want to tell too. So, okay, but, oh, good. So, very, just very quickly. So, Monday night, Rudy Giuliani gives this very fiery speech in which he says, "You know, radical Islam, we're going to come, we're coming to get you." Uh, you know, and uh, Hillary, Hillary Clinton's evil, and you know we're we're going to get you. And then Tuesday night, uh, Chris Christie does the whole gives a speech in which he he starts saying, "Is she guilty or not guilty?" And the audience goes guilty, and they start cheering, "Lock her up!" and and all of that. And I uh, I like red meat as much as the next guy, but it struck me that the tone of these these two guys. Uh, neither of whom, by the way, has served in an elective office uh, for more than uh, 
for more than 15 years. Right. Um, uh, is almost caricature. Well, Christie obviously is. I'm sorry. That's, that's not right. But I mean, there was something extremely caricaturish about this. Like, you know, we're talking about the most serious issues, uh, of national security and all that. And, and, and they, they, they sound, I don't say they sound like goons, but they sound like, they sound like, uh, you know, they're in, uh, Fast and Furious, the Fast and the Furious 7. Or, you know, they're in some. They made a lot of money, though. You know, or Megaforce from 1981 or something like that. It's not, it's not, it's, there was something off putting to me about it. And no one, and no one is, you know, more. So what are you asking is if we felt it was off putting too? Yeah. What what did you, what, how did you guys feel about it? Um, I thought, and John and I talked about this a little bit before while going through the magnetometers. Um, I thought it was partly, (laughs) you know, partly it was inappropriate because, at least for, um, Christie, because everyone says he is the uh, short and wide list for attorney general. And that is not the kind of speech the next attorney general of the United States should be giving. Moreover, it was, uh, you know, I, I kind of agree. I, I normally love the red meaty kind of stuff, but there was a was a kind of out too far over their skis kind of feel to it. And I think part of the problem is so many of the other speeches were just simply flat or boring that there was almost a disconnect. You need to build, th- like the Zell Miller thing was great in 2004 because the speech is kind of built and then you got this crazy red meaty <laughs> thing and it was it, it felt like it was a crescendo. And this felt like they were just trying to, like the ugly American who thinks everybody will understand you if you just shout louder. Um, but I, I, I don't know, I thought Giuliani's speech I thought was better. My problem with Giuliani is that whenever I hear him, and this is really true in like 2004, is the way he talks and his the way he the way he presents himself. It's so parochial that I it kind of feels like the speech is going to end with and Italy belongs to the Italian and Trieste belongs to the Italians. You know, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's I can't explain <laughs> it, but it's, it's weird. No, it's weird. It's like it's weird. He is he's so New York that even Florida thought he was too New York. <laughs> um, but I, I, what I thought was weird about it is that well, two things. One is it all seems so old. It seems so like old, and also this this idea just my, in terms of policy that we're going to take the fight to radical Islam. What's strange about that? I mean, I, I understand that as a policy, but the DNA of the Trump campaign and the Trump supporters is that. Iraq was a mistake. That right. you know, we're, we're America first, and they seem to be saying that we're gonna we're gonna do this thing, but we're not really gonna do it. We're gonna do it, and we're gonna be we're gonna win. But we're not really gonna play, and it's just this strange disconnect to it. That at least with in two thousand four, and I think even in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve, a little less so. But at least then, the the Republican National Convention, the party was full-throated red meat, but also involved in defending and supporting an ongoing military effort and ongoing military entanglement, better or worse, in the Middle East. Right. And this seems to be about not doing that, except when on you know Tuesday night, when we're screaming that we're going to go, we're going to take it to them, but not really. And it just seems there's just something yeah. weird about it that doesn't quite connect. It's like, you know, uh, everybody says he's yeah, a salesman. They're yeah, so they're serving red meat to vegans, is what you're saying. Kind of. Well, this isn't all, isn't all like, it doesn't quite add up. And it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that, the kind of message and argument 
And I mean, everybody says, oh, this guy's like a late-night infomercial huckster. But the, the, the best one of those is Ron Popeil. And Ron Popeil actually delivers a message. It's clear. He repeats himself. You know he believes in the product. Set it and forget it. Remember Ron Papil was the, the rotisserie chicken. Set it yep. and forget it. Yep. And I remember that. And I, I saw that commercial a lot. And I really thought, like, really thought about getting it, that rotisserie. And I didn't because I didn't have room on my counter for it at the time. But he almost got me. And I think that the problem with Trump is, isn't that he's that guy. It's that he's not enough of that guy. Like an actual salesman would have said, wait, wait, wait. What are the five clear things we want America to take away at the end of this week? And everything has got to be about one of those five things or it doesn't get on the air. And instead, it's just this kind of mishmash of nonsense and reheated other stuff from before and, and a weird kind of contradictory message of we're going to take the fight to them, but not really. It's just it, – it's weird. It's just I can't figure it out. I don't know what he's for. Yeah. Jonah, before you get to your story, I just want to say there's a person staying in this horrendous Motel 6. You know what it needs? It needs a Casper mattress. That's what it needs. Casper, <laughs> online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price – Mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. I don't know why the word inherently is there. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms, passing that savings directly to the consumer. Mattress resilience, long-lasting supportive comfort. It has bounce and latex foam and memory foam, just the right bounce, just the right softness. Mattresses can cost over well over 1500 bucks. Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-size mattress, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full-size, $850 for a queen-size, $950 for a king-size. Casper understands buying a mattress online can have consumers wondering how it's possible. Here's why. It's completely risk-free. Free delivery. Returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. You, you get the box. It comes in a box. It's smaller than you could believe. You cut open the plastic. It pops open. You put it on the bed. You're going to love it. And if you don't, you can roll it back up and put it right back in the box and send it back. Just the right sink. Just the right bounce. Mattresses made in America to make American mattresses great again. 500 twin size. six nine fifty king size. So for 50% off your first purchase, go to casper.com slash glop. Use the coupon code glop at checkout. We'll sleep better knowing you did. We thank Casper Mattresses for sponsoring the Glock Culture Podcast. And Jonah, you have a really good story you wanted to tell. Yeah, first I want to say, speaking of just the right softness and just the right bounce, that was the RuPaul of transitions, John. That, yes. Well done. You know, you, well done. You know, you know, you know your, your hostility... Your use of these heroes <laughs> and heroes and <laughs> of our time, I find I, I find offensive. I, I understand. Okay. Okay. I, I, okay. I, 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 I was just married to the bit, and I wanted to see it through to the okay. end. But um, that 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 line was the day the clown cried of responses to my transitions. <laughs> um, so uh, this is I, I, I I'm assuming. Charles Krauthammer won't have a problem with this, um, but this was not a public thing. So Charles, for those of you who don't know, has an incredibly can have an incredibly dry sense of humor when he wants to. He kind of reminds me of my dad in that way. And last night, a friend of mine was in the Fox green room in the Quicken Loan Arena um, 
and it, it was crawling across the hallway with him out in the public. And whenever Charles goes in public at the conventions, people want to stop and ask for pictures and whatever. And anyway, so this friend of mine was with Charles when a lady came up and asked for a, you know, sort of a selfie with them and leaned over to say something to him. And, and Charles, of course, said yes. And she had a big Jewish star necklace that was sort of flopping around, dangling from her neck. And once the picture was taken, Charles just very quietly and dryly asked the lady, so, are you a sheriff? So, I liked it. So, so. That's good. <laughs> so, this convention was worth it for one moment with Charles. No, <laughs> that's actually not bad. You know, I know. A, I know. Better, I mean, you don't get it's a good day. Like that. That's what I got to say. Um, but the, but the, in my, I only, I only really went to two conventions seriously. I mean, I went to a few others, but two, two where I was like wandering around during the day, and I had a press credential as it, you know, of some, some description, and I, I, I didn't really get any of it except the social stuff, except the little the stories of the jokes and standing around with people and and talking about random stuff like that. That to me was the whole point of the convention. So I'm surprised that that's the. I mean, it's got to be. That's got to be what it all makes. It makes it all worth it, right? Because otherwise, you're just sort of wandering around the, the, the hall, talking to people and trying now to look, get some kind of idea people, of a story. I love coming to this for this reason. I've I've been in the you know in the news business for I don't know 35 years. I've been I I spent nine or ten months in politics, you know, working at the White House and at the drug czar's office. I've worked at seven different publications. Coming to something like this, it is like a class reunion yeah. for me. I really enjoy it. I see all sorts of people I haven't seen in years. It is not a justification to continue the convention system. It, it is not a justification <laughs> no, in any shape or form for, you know, four days of purposeless nonsense, particularly when, you know, when you have the, when you have people on the podium uh, absolutely refusing to properly record the votes of states just to give them a big finger on Donald Trump's behalf, right. which basically reveals the total hollowness and ridiculousness of the proceedings. But it's fun. And the one interesting thing for me, it's a lot of fun. I do not think that these delegates, in part because there aren't that many parties, because the because the corporations aren't here and because the lobbyists aren't here to throw them and all that, um, they don't seem to be having as much fun as they've had before. I and agree entirely. I, and I, the, the spirit is very resigned. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that the, these are the Republican worker right. bees. These are the people who have dedicated their lives to the party. And remember, these people, they are not, you know, Trump's online supporters, they are not, you know, right, right, they're right. not, they're, they're, they're not Trump's yeah. And 60 to 70% of them did not want to see this result. And you can feel it on the floor. And that's just, that's just the fact of it. They, yeah. they are, they are resigned to it. They are trying to make the uh -huh. best of it. They're trying to be cheerful, but it just doesn't have the feeling. There's no, I've never felt a convention this way. It's just, they're, on the, they're on the boats about, you know, a, a half a mile from Normandy in the right. morning. <laughs> like, well, I'll, I'll right. tell you, though, yeah. I've been very surprised in that, um, and pleasantly so, that I thought, you know, this is the first, I've been to all, 
all but one Republican convention since 88. And, um, and of course, my profile is much larger than when I was a soda-fetching intern in 1988. And um, I'm known, you know, in this crowd, I get recognized a lot and um, from Fox News and all that. And I really expected, given how out there I am on the anti-Trump stuff and have been for a long time, I really expected a lot of ugly confrontations with people. And, about that. Uh, and um, I didn't get – I haven't had many. I've had some. Uh, I'd say the most common form is – it's not super ugly. It's just kind of creepy and weird where people will come up to me. You know, a lot of people come up and say, oh, can I take a picture with you? Or, you know, are you Steve Hayes? I get that a lot. <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, I was at the Dinesh D'Souza movie premiere and I signed a lot of autographs and people would come up to me and say, will you pose with me even though I'm wearing a Trump t-shirt? And I said, absolutely fine. And the, for the most part, even the people all decked out with, with Trump flair, um, who recognize me at least are very pleasant and very nice, which was a very nice surprise for me. But given that the, the horrors of like my Twitter and email, I just assumed that I was going to run into a lot of those right. kinds of people. Um, but I do get about tend a, to leave the house, but yeah, I yeah. have had a, about a half dozen to a dozen people who all offer sort of variants of the same thing. As they walk right up to me and they say, "I know who you are," and then they walk away, or "I recognize you," yeah, and then walk away. And it's like they want to acknowledge that they know who I am, but they're not going to say "nice to meet you" or anything like. I mean, it's, it's a weird kind of thready, kind yeah. of just kind of odd thing to do um and i've been getting a lot of that more than i've ever had at any other you know sort of conservative fox news heavy event um and you know last night i was at a bar uh, i was at a restaurant having dinner with a couple friends that we needed to catch up and there's all sorts of things going on that we needed to catch up on you know uh, fox and otherwise and um i go past this table and these people recognize me and this guy in a particularly asinine sort of voice is like, shouldn't you guys be off, you know, consoling poor Bill Crystal who's crying into his pillow tonight, you know, thinking that like I'm on his side. And, you know, one of my big things is I'm just not going to sort of like play along with this kind of stuff. And so I said, you know, just so you know, I'm with Bill on this and I think Trump is a terrible nominee and I'm not pro Trump. And, he just starts, you know, he goes, I am. And, you know, and then as, as a total sort of Trump dick move, sends these shots of Jägermeister over um, to console us in our, our, our woe about Trump. And first of all, because I'm not 14 and looking to get a 14-year-old girl drunk, I don't drink Jägermeister anymore. Um <laughs> And you're in your 40s looking to get a 14-year-old. <laughs> and, and the waiter later came over and apologized and said, yeah, he was just – he just thought it was the hilarious thing to sort of do this. And, you know, he was totally intended as sort of a powered dick move. But um, uh, there's been a few things like that that have been going on around here. But most of all, I think John is right. I think that most people aren't that jazzed about Trump well. and um, – and there's the there's another distinction which I think John and I may be getting more of than most people, which is that uh, I've talked to a bunch of people who hung out with delegations, and I'll, the, the sort of rank and file delegate crowd is much more let's much more rah rah or much more likely to be rah rah about all of this. Mm-hmm. But when you talk to like the movement people, the 
consultants, the analysts, the conservative intellectuals, conservative journalists, the lobbyists for you know conservative causes, not necessarily for industry, who actually understand the nature of what we're doing here and the nature of the problem what we're doing here, it is a very somber thing. And the last thing I'll point out, make is it's what's really kind of funny. Again, I don't think Donald Trump is Hitler. I don't think this is 1930s Germany or any of that kind of stuff. But you can kind of appreciate how, like, you can imagine in 1933, if you were a really anti-Hitler Germany, really thought the country was going the wrong way, when you talk to a person you haven't seen in a long time, you have to test them verbally to see where they come down. You just can't come right out yeah, and say what right, you believe. Right. And so, so you have to do all sorts of, huh, funny thing about, you know, an interesting curfew they just passed. Huh. <laughs> you know, and see well, what you know, I guess it's the kind of thing we got to do, I suppose. And just what are your what feelings they, about it? Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of that with like friends right. I haven't seen in like four years where you have to sort of be like, huh, mm-hmm. there's an interesting convention, huh? And see whether they yeah. are willing to sort of, you know, give you the high sign or the yeah. secret handshake. Say, friend, I keep forgetting, when's Purim? <laughs> well, it's in March. How do you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, but I think what, what, what certain people do, I mean, I'm like, uh, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm definitely aligned with you on this, but what, I think what the mistake people make uh, is that they, they think that brands don't die, and brands do die. And they, you know, you, you can't buy an IBM typewriter, you can't buy an IBM computer, you can't. Um, buy a Kodak Kodak film. You, you know, like, there's all sorts of things you can't do. Uh, there were these incredibly, incredibly famous brands, American brands, for for uh, almost a century. They, they now don't exist. Or what happens is old brands are then bought by the Chinese and they go to the discount shelf. And that's usually what happens to a great American brand before it disappears. It goes to the discount shelf, and that I think is what's happened. To the Republican brand, it's now on the discount shelf, and I think if you're paying attention to it, I mean, I would not be surprised if it just disappeared, just didn't was no longer relevant. That that, that can happen. We we tend to think that oh no, it can't. There are all these institutional and physical properties that require you to have to have. It's got to be Republican, all that stuff. But uh, these things fall apart really quickly, and um, and they can fall apart. And I think we're watching this one fall apart. Yeah, well, the downgrade from from Clint Eastwood to Scott Baio sort of says a lot of it, but. Right. Well, that, that's true, too. Um, and I will, I will end on this note, which is we can talk and talk and talk about Trump. And he's, he's down three, and Hillary had a bad week, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, a gigantic poll of, uh, of, of Hispanics uh, in the United States has, uh, has Trump at 12. And uh, if Trump is at 12, the election is over. So we can talk about bringing out the white working class and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and if, uh, if, if this is right, um, and this, these numbers are even remotely accurate or even, you know, off by, even if they're off by seven points, Trump is toast. So, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens and we'll see what happens with Hillary and the convention next week and whether well, it's, it's an old, it's an old saying that the screaming is always loudest after the change has occurred. <laughs> that's very is what this very, is. That's very, very deep. So gentlemen, I want you to ponder on that, fellas. I, I have to I have to run off for a for a uh, for a dinner at the uh the, the very Ooh. exclusive CNN grill. Fancy fancy. Uh, which is like a uh, which is like a literally like a Georgetown cocktail party. Where are you having uh, it? Uh, at the CNN grill, which is yeah. a 
which is every four-year restaurant bar that CNN has that you can only <laughs> what, get in. What, who will be there? Who are the who are the glamorous personages? Personages who will be there? Well, well, as as is true of this convention, the hilarious thing is that uh, the politicians are all and Scott Bayos or Kimberlins or whatever. No, they're all the politicians are doing it. They're lining up to take pictures with the journalists. This is the one place in the world where the journalists are the stars. Include and the politicians are all like, "Hey, oh look, yeah, there's oh Mark Shields, you know it's great to see you." So uh, that's it's basically a lot of journalists uh, talking to each other. So wait, so what? So so he's going to see it on grill, Jonah. Where are you going to be? Um, I, I'm going to figure out where to watch stuff tonight. Um, I might oh. swing by the CNN grill too. I don't know. Uh, I have to figure out where will it you, is. I still haven't found it. I'm on the list. Well, uh, you got new- you had an invitation. You'd know where it was. It's interesting. It's, you don't uh, know where it is. It's it's it's, it's, con- it's open constantly. It's 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 a hangout yeah. place. It's don't tell him. Jo- don't tell him, John. Just ha- okay. check your evite, Jonah. If you got an evite, it should have it right there. Should be no uh, no mystery at all where and when it is. That's all what right. I'm saying. All so right, guys, uh, <laughs> it's great, great, great talking to you from the apocalypse. And uh, and John, uh, do you have anything to announce other than you're swanning around at the CNN grill? I got nothing. What about you? Uh, the only thing I would say, and just as a little sort of miracle on 34th Street, Gimbal's recommending Macy's kind of thing, or vice versa, um, I did a podcast conversation with Bill Crystal that um, was kind of interesting and fun. And, and, uh, was he crying in his beer? He was crying in his beer. He was crying in my <laughs> beer. Um, and you can find it by Googling conversations with Bill Crystal. I tried to keep the and nudity Bob? tasteful. I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, I'm in California for the summer, and the weather here is beautiful. And I'm forcing myself to turn on this uh, the convention. And I, I don't think I'll force myself to turn on the Democratic convention. I think I'm just gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna run a front porch campaign of not paying attention to it. That that's uh, and I'm not going, so I'm I will be too. Uh, so anyway, uh, great talking to you guys, and uh, we will reconnoiter next month. Uh, as the apocalypse continues. Keep hope alive. See you soon, fellas. Bye. There's a red moon rising On the Cuyahoga River Rolling into Cleveland to the lake There's a red moon rising On the Cuyahoga River Rolling into Cleveland to the lake There's an oil barge winding Down the Cuyahoga River Rolling into Cleveland to the lake There's an oil Bars winding down the Cuyahoga River, rolling into Cleveland to the lake. Cleveland, city of light, city of magic. Cleveland, city of light, you're calling. And even now I can remember Cause the Cuyahoga River Goes smoking 
think of when you think of a hunting lodge? Hunt. Yes. What do you think of when you think of a rest home? Your rest. So, you see, we're going to associate the Desert Inn with something beautiful. You don't think of anything here now, do you? Gambling. That's ah. why people come here. That's they right. gamble. They oh. want to go to hunting lodge. They go to Wisconsin. They want to rest. They go to New Orleans. They want to gamble. They come to Vegas. That's what it's called. Gambling. Las Vegas gambling. You see signs around this town with guys with guns shooting ducks. It's a gambling play. They don't shoot ducks, raccoons, beavers. They come to gamble. That's what we do here. Now, you're a nice guy. You make me laugh and everything. But our policy is we can't give you money back. I'm real sorry. Say goodbye to your wife. I got to go home. Ricochet. Join the conversation.